Hey everyone, welcome to the third episode of The Other Side of the Truth. My name is Sahith and I'm joined today by David. Today we'll be talking about David's life and how he has overcome his past and began anew. He's lived in Southern California his entire life and he spent five years in federal prison and I just want to learn more about his experience and share it with everyone listening. So we can just get right into it and start with the first question. David, could you just give us a general timeline of your big life events before we start getting into more of the specifics? Yeah, sure. Uh, absolutely. So uh, as you mentioned, I was born and have been raised in Southern California my whole life. Um, I am the oldest of uh, three. I have two younger sisters and my uh, parents, the first big uh, event that happened to me is my parents got divorced when I was nine. Uh, my sisters were really small, really young at the time, um, and did not really remember the divorce. They were so young, it just wasn't really ingrained in them yet. But because I had started, you know, forming my childhood around that time, the divorce really did uh, impact me at some level. Um, my my father only received a partial visitation and we ended up living with our mother full time. And that was around, yeah, around the age of nine. Um, we moved around the Southern California area a little bit. Um, and then, uh, when, you know, I was in high school, we had a, you know, there was some big family drama, which, you know, we'll go into when we get, you know, to that timeline, which ended up forming and setting me down the path. Mm -hmm. I ended up going down and then, you know, I had my time in prison and then, you know, the events afterward, but really prior to going to prison, there were two major life events that occurred for me that shaped me and, and my family and my sisters. And that was my parents' divorce and, um, you know, the, the drama that ended up occurring right around the time I was entering high school. I was around, you know, 13, 14, something like that. Okay, so you frame this, you frame your parents' divorce as like this big turning point in your early life. So could you talk about how your life was prior to that and then how it changed after your parents' divorce? Yeah, so before the divorce, uh, we were living in this, um, in an area, you know, this was, oh my gosh, kind of been late 80s, early 90s, somewhere in that vicinity. And yeah, late 80s, we were living in a part of uh, Southern California called the Inland Empire, which at the time was a lot more rural. So I remember before my parents got divorced, we were living in this part of the Inland Empire, and it was a lot of um, cattle, a lot of cow pastures and stuff like that. So it always smelled like cattle um, in, in the area. And I remember you know, going to, you know, elementary school and, you know, remember spending time with my dad and my mom and it just felt really normal. You know, we would think of very normal and, you know, I was the oldest and for a while I was the only one. And that was, um, that was great. And, you know, my sisters were born while my parents were still married. And so, you know, I got to be a little bit of a big brother and I really enjoyed that. And I just remember it being just really comfy and really feeling normal and everything was great, you know, beforehand. Then right around the time of the divorce, uh, you know, being nine, of course, having no context of what's going on. I, I remember my, my parents, you know, arguing a lot more, um, 
you know, I, I, there was one particular incident. I remember there was an argument that was happening. I don't know what the argument was about. I remember sitting on a couch and I remember plugging my ears because it was so loud. Um, but I just remember that big argument really indelled itself into my mind. And then they got divorced. And I just think I just really wasn't clear at the time of what that really meant. Um, it meant that we weren't living together, but I'd still get to see my dad. Um, and I was just trying to process and, and figure that out and what that meant, you know, after the divorce, uh, it meant that we were living with my mother. Um, and, uh, when the divorce happened, we had moved to a different part of Southern California and, um, we were now living with my mom in this, you know, this place, uh, this, this house, this place we were renting, I think. And, um, I remember it was just a little bit harder because it felt like I had more responsibilities. Um, you know, that there was one less person around. And I remember my dad would pick me up from school afterwards. And that was always a lot of fun. You know, it was like, Oh, this is the day my dad picks me up from schools. So I don't have to take the bus and you know, we get to have lunch. And we get to hang out and you know, that was fun. And then, you know, we'd go, you know, back home. And then as I got older, then, you know, things started to slowly get, you know, a little bit more chaotic and it got harder and harder. And I did not realize it at the time, but it felt like my dad was kept really out of the loop. He had no idea how bad it had gotten, even though he was trying really hard to figure it out. Like my dad was trying really hard to remain involved, but it felt like you know, that he was kept at arm's length. And so, um, but I didn't know that at the time. And, you know, I believe what, you know, my mother was telling us. And so it was really hard to discern the truth at the time of what was really happening and what was really going on. And uh, so after the divorce, it, it got harder. It got harder, especially as I got older and had to take on more responsibilities. But before the divorce, you know, my sisters asked me too, because they don't remember the time before the divorce. You know, my, my, my youngest was, my youngest sister was just a baby at the time. You know, she was really, really young. She couldn't have been, you know, older than, I don't know, just, you know, two, yeah. you yeah. know, something like that. I mean, she, she doesn't remember anything. So, uh, but I can tell you that uh, that got harder afterwards, definitely. And then you mentioned into like going into high school, there was just a lot of like another major event that happened yeah. and which kind of catalyzed everything else that happened after sure. that. So could you talk about like your environment in high school growing up? Was yeah. Like, yeah. Stuff like that. Sure. Because yeah, that's all, that's all linked together. So when my, uh, when I was leaving middle school, entering high school, um, I must have been, I'm going to say, probably 14, 15, somewhere in that vicinity, right? Yeah. Uh, but it would have been my freshman year of high school. And uh, my mom had a medical condition which required surgery. Um, and it was a pretty invasive surgery. And as a consequence, she needed to go on painkillers uh, for very good reason. She was in a lot of pain. Um, now, this was the 90s, 
And so the opioid epidemic was starting to come to a head here. And they put my mom on opioid painkillers, to which she subsequently could not get off of. And uh, this is what catalyzed that event. My mother would be on these these painkillers, um, which my siblings and I called the silly pill because it made my mom act completely not right. It made her not act like our mother. And this was so traumatizing for my sisters and I that I think in total, since this happened in the 90s, right? Like, you know, almost 30 years ago now, yeah. um, we've only talked about it twice because it's just so painful for us um and unfortunately i really recall it a lot because it it really messed me up so when my mother would take these these pills um she would just kind of drool on herself she would just sit in her chair and just become almost catatonic and I realized this was the first moment in my life where I had the realization I'm on my own. I'm on my own here. Um, I got no one I can count on because my, at the time, my mother and my father were not getting along well. And I felt like my mother had portrayed my father in such a way where I could not trust him with the yeah i couldn't get anywhere near with him within the 10-foot pole you know I, I couldn't i couldn't get anywhere near him i couldn't get close to him when he did come to pick us up and still doing his thing i was very guarded because i felt like i couldn't trust anyone and um i have a lot of respect for my father because he, a he had no clue how bad it really was and b he really did care i just didn't see it um and seeing that later just tore me up even more because I saw that he really could have cared and I could have really ended all of this had I just reached out and asked for help, but I didn't know any better. Um, so my sisters are really young at this point. And um, my mother now every day just is, is, you know, not functional. And so yeah. I realized, you know, that you have to do things like pay bills, buy food. You know, we had, we had a couple cats, you know, we had the two or three cats. We had to feed the cats. We had to take care of the animals. And all of a sudden I got thrusted into a world overnight of um, adulting. I had to adult overnight, you know, at the age of like 14, 15. And I was not prepared for that at all. The stress of, how do you pay a mortgage? What is a mortgage? What is rent? How do you pay a rent? How do you, what's the difference? How do I know which one we have? You know, how do I, how do I feed my sisters? How do we get income? You know, there's all these questions I had to start answering because then my sisters would come up to me and say, we're hungry. And I'd be like, you know, I am too, but I got to figure something out. You know, we can't just get in the car. I don't have a license. I can't drive. I don't know how to drive. And, um, uh, I would get on my bike, my little BMX bike, and take the one-hour bike ride to go to the bank. And this was before a lot of the security measures happened after, you know, 9-11 and stuff like this. You couldn't do this today, but, but back then you could. 
And they used to see me in the bank all the time with my mom. And I learned how to sweet talk the tellers to try and get access to my mom's bank account money. I just figured out a way to do that. I had to learn how to forge her signature. I had to learn how to, you know, you know, figure out how to write a check. I had to all these things I was not prepared to do at this age yet. Something just got thrust into me and I couldn't handle the burden and the pressure of this. So now I'm in high school and my classmates are talking about what they're going to wear to prom. And I'm like, okay, you, t- you pick something. And they're like, this is like the biggest, you know, life decision they have to make. And I just couldn't relate to them because I'm here sitting here working a family budget, you know, <laughs> actually budgeting our family income of, of, of what I've been able to acquire and trying to arrange how can I do my studies and how can I get us over to the grocery store and buy food, but we don't have a car, you know, we can just, the groceries we have, whatever we can carry. And one of the conversations I did have with my sister, one of my sisters was very fascinating. I, I'm going to just give the disclaimer that my memory in this area is spotty and not entirely accurate was so traumatizing and my sisters would mention things and I'm like I don't even remember it that way I don't even remember this happening and so by accumulating a lot of our memories together I can kind of give you a, a close picture of what happened um I I remember doing the grocery shopping by myself but they remember coming with me so I'm going to say that's what happened but they would say we we would all get together on our bikes and we would go to the grocery store and we would buy food and we would strategically bag the food so that, you know, whatever my sister could put in her backpack and then whatever I could put on my handlebars and, you know, and then the two of us would just lug it home. And it was a pain because there was a lot of hills. And then, you know, but we had to, but we had to like, well, we can only fit so much in her backpack and on my handlebars. So, you know, we have to, you know, we got to make sure there's food for the cat. We have to make sure there's food for this. And we have to make sure this can last and this can't. And, you know, trying to plan it all out. We can't, we can't just get ice cream, um, one time my, my sister married. And so my brother-in-law's, you know, we were, I was kind of having a down day and my brother-in-law was like, let's watch a funny movie. So we watched, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. And, um, that is a movie about kids who are on their own. And my sister and I couldn't watch it. It just, it was re-traumatizing for us. And my brother-in-law just, oh, wow. I don't think he fully understood. And my, my, my sister and I were just freaking out the whole movie. Like, no, no, that's not how it really is. That's not how it really is. Oh, what are you talking about? Oh, no. You know, and I just, and I had to leave. <laughs> I just had to say, we have to stop. I can't, I can't watch this anymore. It was too much. It was too painful. And uh, I, 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 that was kind of when I realized how much that really impacted me. Um, but, you know, there are these, these moments where I remember you know, us trying to survive. And um, I remember the hardest moments were late at night, 11 p.m. And my mother hadn't moved all day. And I'm trying to drag her into her bed and she doesn't want to move. And I'm trying to just lift her. And I had, you know, I was, I was a, you know, I was just a, it was just a stick then. I was just a scrawny, you know, I, I, I couldn't, I had no, body strength then i couldn't lift my mother and and just trying to get her into bed and sometimes i was successful and other times i wasn't and then i'd go to high school and my my classmates were talking about you know what so-and-so said about the other person and i'm like seriously seriously that's your biggest concern you know i couldn't relate to 
any of my classmates. And as a result, I just kind of ended up being a loner because none of these these people seem so out of touch to me when I realized I was the one who just, yeah, I didn't see that until way later, but I was the one who was out of touch. So as a result, you know, um, there was a Marine ecology instructor, um, who saw me in pain. I never really said anything, but this is, this is an astute to the heroes that our, our teachers are in high school. This man saw me in pain, saw the pain inside of me that I was hiding. And he saw it and he reached out to me. And he asked me if I just wanted to talk. And that's what I really needed. I had no one I could confide in. I had no one I could trust. I had no one to go to. I was just holding the, all of this inside. And so he's like, hey, at lunch, you know, I'm just going to hang here. You know, come inside. We'll watch cnn or something and and i would and I'd, every lunch i would go inside and we would chat and and this is probably what prevented me from you know contemplating suicide at that time you know this is the one that probably saved my life and um to this day you know uh, I, I credit him so much you know for saving me from you know from sending me down even a worse path but as a result of this time, uh, I developed unhealthy coping mechanisms. Um, I had a warped sense of reality, and I had a warped sense of, of, of what it meant to be an adult and what it meant to be responsible. Everything was just so um, out of alignment. And um, I just started making decisions that, that weren't appropriate, that took me down the wrong path. You know, I make it through high school, barely, with like a 2.0 GPA. I, it was terrible. Um, then what shifted everything was my aunt, an aunt of mine from um, out of state, came to visit my mom. She knew my mom wasn't doing well. This is now, we've been doing this now for a couple of years. And my aunt comes by, stays with my mom, uh sees what's happening and says, Oh my God, you got to get out of here. You got to go and live with your dad. She just, she finally saw what we were dealing with and had no idea. And I just kind of assumed this was normal because it's what we grew up with. Right? Like nobody else deals with this, you know, you know, another time I remember before my aunt came by is my mom was somewhat coherent one day, but she was very um, high on the medication. So she decided we were going to um, go to the mall and my mom is driving fine. We couldn't stay in the lane and we ended up getting into a car accident and my mom somehow played it off and the car was somehow still drivable. And we go to the mall and my mom had a check and I was very excited for this check because I had already budgeted how this money was going to be allocated for us to survive. And my mom spends the whole check at the, uh, the, I don't know if you're familiar with a store called Sanrio, Hello Kitty, and all of that. My mom spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars at the store, and I was ready to pass out because that, there went all the money. And I am sitting there with these bags of absolute stuff that's absolutely useless. I mean, what am I going to do with, a Hello, with, with eight Hello Kitty staplers? You know, what, what am I going to do? Yeah. I can't feed a family with this. So I, I, I somehow, 
convince my mom to go and return it all days later. It took days. And I'm like, we need that money for this. And we need this money for that. And, um, and, and, and I remember that was just, that was, that was a straw that broke me. You know, I just couldn't handle it anymore. And then my aunt showed up and she saw what we were living with. Now, by this time, I had started working. I was now old enough to have a job with a job permit, but I never got to keep any of that money. See, my mom made me give her my whole paycheck as kind of recompense for living with that, with her. So I remember one time I asked for $50 for my paycheck so I could, you know, go do something, maybe buy a ticket to the prom or something. And I remember that was akin to me trying to, you know, you know, ask for a thousand dollars, you know, ask for a new car, you know? And I'm like, yeah, that was out of line. And, um, uh, and so I just kind of had this work ethic where, why do I care? I'm not seeing a penny from this paycheck, you know? And, um, uh, but I enjoyed working because it got me out of the house. Um, and this also started a very bad habit of me being a workaholic because I learned that one way to get deal with my problems by, is to not deal with them by working. So that was a very unhealthy, another unhealthy coping mechanism uh, I had. So my aunt picked me up one day from work. And I'm like, oh, why isn't mom picking me up, you know? And uh, she said, uh, because we're, we're, you're going to live with your dad. And I'm like, I, I can't, I can't go to dad. I can't trust him. You know, I, we had been poisoned so much against him. And he's, she's like, your dad has no clue. Your dad has no clue what's going on. And, uh, I, I, I couldn't. And I think I, I tried living with him for a week and I was just vomiting because I was so stuck to my stomach that I just couldn't trust him. And then I realized there was no proof, but it's just, just what I had been told over and over and over and over and over and over. And I just ended up believing it as truth. Um, and then I, I came back and I'm like, I can't, I just can't. And then one day when my mom was somewhat functional on her medication, uh, I, I was loading the dishwasher, you know, to do dishes. And uh, my mom had gotten so furious at me because I had loaded the dishwasher incorrectly. And she says, that's it. I'm kicking you out. And I'm like, what do you mean you're kicking me out? And, and uh, I got kicked out of the house because I loaded the dishwasher incorrectly. And so now I'm standing. Uh, I didn't have a chance to pack or anything. I just kind of have like, I grabbed a few clothes and I'm just standing on the porch. Like, well, now what do I do? And you got to remember this was before cell phones, you know? And um, uh, I don't recall how my dad found out but somehow he found out and he came by to pick me up and i was just in shock and in trauma and um you know my dad takes me home and he's like what's going on i have no clue what's going on i'm like what do you mean you have no clue what's going on and then my dad and i for the first time have a conversation and my dad's jaw was on the floor he just had absolutely no clue he was like speechless and I'm like, that's strange because my mother would tell me that, you know, living with my father was like akin to living in a, you know, you know, a prisoner of war camp, you know, and, and, and it turns out that that wasn't true. You know, all of a sudden I started seeing these pieces of proof that indicated the other direction was true, that my father was trustworthy and my father was an incredibly patient man and sat through 
me dealing with me a as a teenager dealing with that and but also dealing with me learning to trust him and giving me the space i needed and um that's how i picked myself up to a 2.0 gpa because i was a straight f student the whole way through high school uh, the reason i passed high school is because i was able to pick it up enough to pass enough classes to uh to get me passed and that was when i was living with my dad and and slowly over time i started to realize this was um you know this was this was true this was true this was really um you know this was very important um the uh the afterwards uh, i told my dad you know we got to get my sisters out of there because now they're dealing with this and they have no clue so then then my dad and i focused all of our efforts to get my middle sister out and and um because i was older and i may have been 18 or close to 18 at the time it was just easy for me just to go over but because my middle sister was much younger it required a court battle so my dad sunk everything he had into fighting in court to get custody full custody of my middle sister of which after a bloody court battle um he won you know um and then he tried to go after my little sister but my mom was like uh uh i'm not losing all my kids and my we were not able to save my little sister and so he ended up living with my mother until she turned 18 um by the time we had gotten my sister, my middle sister, to live with us, I had moved on to college. I was now starting my college career. And it's fascinating to me because in my family, at least my father's side of the family, college was important. Um, it was not an option to not go to college. Sorry for the double negative, but you <laughs> had to go to college. So, like, yeah. I, it, it sounds odd, but I didn't realize it until much later that you could not go to college. Like that's an option. You know? <laughs> it, to me, it was still part of the compulsory education system, you know, but uh, you know, you know, here I am going to college and uh, my instructors were very impressed because it was very um, mature for my age. And I was like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. And uh, uh, I learned a lot. And um, I, uh, started going through the college system and now I am super focused on college. This is, this is like my entire everything. And, and I was trying to work a job on top of that. Um, I didn't focus on this and then having a conversation with my middle sister last year. Right. So 2020, and I'm just figuring this out. Um, my sister told me the most traumatic time for her was not when we were with our mother, but when she was with my dad, because that's when she really felt like she had nobody. Um, my dad, you know, now was, had to pick up the pace now, you know, he didn't, he didn't have the income to support two children. Now he had to, and child support on top of it for my other sister. So he had to pick up the pace and just constantly bury himself in work just to make ends meet to provide for us. And then I am trying to turn away from the past and focus all of my energy, effort, and time into college. And I neglected my sister. And I didn't even realize it until last year after talking with her and then hearing how that had impacted her. And, and I forget that we also weren't that close then. You know, we became close after I went to prison. 
but before prison, you know, we weren't, uh, we weren't exactly close. You know, we kept in touch, but you know, we'd call each other, I don't know, once every six months, you know, <laughs> twice a year we'd talk. And, uh, uh, and then I started to really realize the impact on her and I felt so terrible, you know, like it shouldn't have been my responsibility, but at the same time, it's like, dang it, you know, I'm looking back with hindsight and all the lessons I have learned since that, you know, family is paramount. And, um, I, I dropped it. I dropped the ball with my sister. And, and she's like, you know, those few times we did these three or four things, which I remember she goes, those meant the world to me. And I'm like, I didn't really do anything with my sister then, you know, I didn't do much with her and I really should have. And, and that's, you know, one of the regrets I have was not, focusing on balance but balance is something i had to learn years later years later took because i didn't learn how to balance my life um and so uh life continues on um i am now uh, a junior in college and i transfer to a four-year university to finish out my bachelor's degree and I meet a woman. Meet I meet the person who uh, I would want to spend my life with at the time. Um, and we start dating. And we have things in common. And um, it was the first time I felt accepted. And I hadn't really had that experience outside of family before. And it was really, really refreshing. And... Um, I fell in love and um, I eventually moved out of my father's house um, to go live with my girlfriend. And uh, I'm excited because, cause now I've now by this time, by the time I have moved out, I have graduated college and we dated for a while and I graduated college and my dad's like, I think it's time for you to move on. And I didn't want to move on because I was just so used to playing it safe because life hadn't been safe. And he's like, you need to move on. So I move out of my dad's house. And uh, this is now 2007. 2007 happens. And I move out of my dad's house. Um, and I'm starting a, a life. And my, um, I propose we're engaged and she lets me know she's pregnant and I'm starting a family and life is, is great, you know? And then, um, I'm at work, um, looking at a promotion, you know, I'm, I'm working in the consumer electronics industry. Um, you know, I'm looking at moving into management. Um, it's my first job out of college. I'm earning my stripes. Um, and I get a phone call and it is the federal government. And uh, they are like, um, we need to talk to you. And I said, all right, well, I'm kind of in the middle of something. You know, is this an emergency? And they're like, yeah, yeah, come see us right away. So um, I had just moved out of my dad's house and, and moved in and starting a life and all of this. And um, uh, because this was such an out of ordinary call, out of just habit, I drove back to my dad's house because I just had moved out. I just forgot to go to my apartment. And I go to my dad's house, which I turned out I wasn't supposed to. 
Um, and the, it looked like a hurricane had hit only one house. The door was gone. I mean, the, the door frame was in pieces and the door was just on the floor. The front door was on the floor. And I'm like, what the hell? And I go inside and there's like papers, you know, you know how, uh, because now the door can't close. So, you know, there's wind blowing through and you know, in those movies where there's like papers blowing around yeah. and stuff like that. It, it kind of had that feel. There's like all these papers blowing around and everything is just on the floor and everything is just turned upside down. And, um, it slowly dawns on me that this is my fault. This has to do with some poor choices I had made a couple years ago. And um, I started to slowly freak out as it started to dawn on me. And I'm trying to call my dad and he's not picking up the phone um, there's evidence my dad was here, but I, I can't really tell. And I'm, I'm searching the whole house and the whole house just is in shambles. Um, um, and then, and then as, as, as I'm going through the house, it's just slowly starting to hit me. And then I called the federal government, the guys, the agents back. And I said, I went to the wrong house by accident. I'm, Cause I told them when I was going to be home and that time had elapsed and they're like, where are you? And now they're thinking, <laughs> A, I don't want him to think I'm making a run for it. And I'm like, I made a mistake. I went to my dad's house. I'm heading home now. And now I'm driving home and it's a 45 minute drive home. And I just remember having just, um, when I get really nervous, I start having really bad stomach pains, you know, like I'm just like, you know, Oh God, I was in a lot of physical pain. It's starting to physically manifest itself. And I'm just starting to run through all these scenarios in my head. I'm trying to run through everything, trying to figure out what to do, come up with a plan of action in 45 minutes. So I get to the, um, I get home. Um, my fiance is still at work. Um, and now they only had a warrant for my dad's house. They did not have a warrant for my place because they properly assumed I was still there because I had just moved out. Yeah. So they couldn't get in. They were so they were playing good cop, bad cop. There was two agents uh, in a Crown Victoria. Um, and to this day, I understand people who have uh, very nervous feelings around Crown Victorias. Uh, those cars, uh, <laughs> it's the classic car of the agents back then, and um, um, so I'm I'm up at my front door and they're just sitting there waiting for me. And they're like, look, we don't have a warrant. You can let us in or we can come back with a warrant, which I assure you, you do not want to have happen. Being completely naive um, and also realizing the jig is probably almost up. I let them in um, without a warrant. Looking back, I should have made them have a warrant. They <laughs> couldn't have done anything different anyways. But, um, but I was in a stage of panic and not really thinking correctly. So uh, I play dumb because I didn't have a better option. So I just answered every question. I don't remember. I don't recall. I don't know. I'm not saying yes. I'm not saying no. I'm just saying, I don't know. It's really stressful having federal agents in my home. I don't know what the hell is going on. Yeah. And so um, they've got a giant binder with them. And um, they sit me down. Um, and they're sitting at the kitchen table. I'm on the other side. And they are uh, open up the binder and then they start reading stuff to me. 
communications I've had with other people, um, you know, presenting their evidence. And I just have this sinking pit in my stomach that the jig is up. And um, I never really fathomed that this would ever happen. You know, I was young, you know, I was in my late teens, early twenties, I was invincible. Um, and, uh, but it took him a couple years to get to this point. And, um, they're walking around looking for stuff and they are collecting their evidence. And it starts to dawn on them that I was the guy they were looking for. And I didn't quite understand that. Um, they actually thought it was my dad who did this. Um, and for some reason, um, that didn't really hit me. And it was, they, they said, maybe it's this guy we're looking for. Cause this, you know, pieces are starting to make sense here, you know? Um, and, uh, they do their thing and then they leave. It was very calm. You know, they asked me if I had any weapons. I said, you know, the only thing I have are some antique swords, um, you know, I was planning on getting them refinished, but they're rusted shut. I had no other weapons. And we go through this whole process. They collect their evidence. And then they're like, thank you. And then they leave. And then um, I'm just kind of sitting there. Like, I don't know what to do. What do I do now? And then um, my dad gives me a call. And he's like, they told me not to call you, but fuck them. I'm calling you. And then he says, this is what they say is going on. I have no idea what they're talking about. Do you know anything about this? And this answer that I give my father is the beginning of the largest regret I've had in my life. And I said, no, dad, I have no idea what they're talking about. He goes, good. They got the wrong family. I have no idea how this could happen. I said, you're right, dad. I don't know what the hell's going on. And um, what I did not realize is that they couldn't determine if it was me or my father. They proceeded uh, to tear his life apart. They um, went around the neighborhood saying, do you know anything about this guy doing this thing? And the neighborhood gossip was really strong. And my dad ended up becoming ostracized. And I found out later he eventually had to sell his house. Because, you know, our neighbor was a district attorney, not a federal one, but he knew his way around to, you know, talk to law enforcement and was able to pry information out. And then that gave that to the neighborhood gossip and just made things utterly worse for him. Um, they proceeded to tarnish my father's reputation in his business. He was self-employed. Um, it destroyed his, you know, his business. It destroyed everything. And there could have been any one moment where I could have stood up and said, you have the wrong guy. You're looking for me, leave him alone. And they would have cleared him, but I never did. I let them, I, I, I saw my dad being eaten by the wolves and I was staring right at him and I could have put my hand down and said, let me pull you out. And I didn't. And I just let them tear him apart piece by piece. And to this day, I will never forgive myself for having done that. He eventually was exonerated by the federal government, but the damage had been done. He had to move. Um, he had to somehow reboot his business. Um, I let them destroy his life. And, um, and then he realized I did do what the federal government did. And I don't really know how he processed that, knowing that I had lied to his face 
knowing that I could have stopped it and didn't. Um, but after that initial, uh, what we call the knock and talk, you know, they, they knock on the yeah. door, let's have a conversation, let's gather some evidence. Um, they exonerate my dad and then nothing happens. A year goes by and I figured, eh, maybe they didn't have enough evidence to do anything. <laughs> no, no. The federal government really likes to have all their T's crossed and all their I's dotted before they do anything. No, it was a solid year of them putting reports together, putting evidence together, putting everything together, going to the courts, getting another warrant from my arrest and everything. But in the meantime, I just naively thought, ah, I just got lucky. <laughs> but after the knock and talk, I called my ex at work and I said, I need to pick you up. Um, it's an emergency. Tell them it's a family emergency. I got to talk to you right away. So she leaves and she's like, what's happened? And I said, uh, and I played it off. Like it wasn't a big deal. Like, Hey, the feds were here. They're saying I did something. I've got it all under control. Um, don't worry about anything. It's going to be okay. And she was of course worried. Um, you know, my son was due to be born pretty soon. And I'm like, I I've got this handled. And the truth was, is I didn't have it handled. I just didn't know what to do. Um, a lot of what happened in my past, you know, if I couldn't trust anyone, kind of started creeping back into my life again. You know, I can't trust anyone to help me with this. I got to figure this out on my own. That's how I've always dealt with everything. And, um, and I did a very piss poor job of doing that. So, um, but life goes on. Every day I come home from work for a year, I look at my door to see if it looked like my dad's door, you know, the, the door frame broken in, did they bust in while I was at work? No? Okay, good. Every day I would do that. And um, uh, eventually my son is born. He is born in November of 2007. Um, my ex and I have set a day to be married, um, you know, the Saturday, I think it was like the first or second Saturday of January. Um, we had a wed our wedding planned. You know, we've been talking with the wedding planner. We've already invited all the people. Everyone's RSVP. You know, talking with the caterers. You know, I'm handling all that. I had to I had to raise my sisters and handle all that. I'm the one who's really good with finances. I'm the one who's really good with numbers. I'm the one who is really good with organization and structure because I had to be. And so um, I'm the one. You know, working with our wedding planner kind of just getting this all set to go um and then in january my son is two months old um it is the week of our wedding um we're getting married on a it's probably like a saturday and um you know wednesday night my my ex or my well we didn't make it but my fiance and i at the time uh, we we're talking and she's like, I'm going to go pick up the wedding dress tomorrow. I'm like, fantastic. And then, um, I, I can't wait. You know, I I'm dying to see about this. It's supposed to be not traditional and I haven't been able to see it. And maybe I might get a peek of it when I drop her off. And <laughs> so, um, you know, so we're making plans for Thursday to do all this, you know, pick up her wedding dress. I'm just super jazzed and my life is turning out Thursday morning, um, two days before the wedding. Um, there was this insane pounding at the door at like four in the morning. And I'm like, what the hell? And I'm like walking to the door kind of like in that haze because I haven't quite woken up yet, but like something's happening. And I'm like, you know, stumbling around. 
and I open the door and in the quickest of blur, there are these federal agents storming my dinker little of an apartment. And they, they throw me to the ground. Um, and you know, I mean, this has happened in the haze. So I'm just using a lot of, um, this is also kind of happening. Um, you know, yeah, of course. From what I can recollect, right? But I remember going to the ground quickly. <laughs> uh, I remember them being suited up to the gills, like riot shields, you know, like they are defending against an insurrection, right? Um, they've, they're fully armed to the teeth. They, um, they have flak vests on. They have flashbangs. They have everything armed to the teeth. And... Um, they're they're doing that thing you see in the movies where they go and they, they walk into an apartment they're like clear and then they walk into the next one clear and, you know, <laughs> you know it, it's it's a production it really is and then they uh, uh there i had this really tiny bathroom and one of the guys was so heavily armored and so suited up he got stuck in the doorway because he couldn't he was trying to clear the bathroom but it was one of those bathrooms where you kind of had to stand in the corner to close the door because you couldn't open the door while you were sitting on the toilet kind of a deal it was a really tiny bathroom and this agent was so committed to clearing the bathroom, even though he couldn't fit through it, um, it was kind of entertaining to watch. And eventually he clears it. I think he gave up and realized there was no one in there. And then he had to wedge himself back out of the doorway. Um, needless to say, that only took like two minutes. <laughs> and um, they get my fiance and my son and they separate us. They put her in the living room. They usher me into the, into the uh, bedroom and they hand me a warrant for my arrest. And I'm kind of still half asleep at this point, but the adrenaline is quickly waking me up. And um, I don't really need to know the warrant, what the warrant says, because I know why I'm being arrested. And then I hear the famous reading of the rights. You have the right to remain silent, anything you say, and all that jazz, right? My rights are read to me. And um, I kind of shove the warrant into like a part of the closet somewhere. I'm like, I got to put this somewhere. I kind of just shove it somewhere. And then they start asking me questions. Okay. What did you do on this day? What, what was happening when this happened? What did you do over here? Da, 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 da. And I said, you know, I'm exercising my right to remain silent. Now that you've, <laughs> now that you've Mirandized <laughs> me, I'm, I am not saying a darn word now. And he's like, Oh, ho, ho, someone has watched the law and order. And I'm like, no, someone knows his rights, you know? <laughs> so they were very snarky. I did not appreciate these guys, but you know, who, who am I to be surprised that federal agents were not polite. Um, so I, I said, look, <clears throat> they go through the whole rigmarole, letting me know I'm, I'm being arrested. Um, I am dealing with what that means in my head, but at the same time, I want to preserve as much dignity as possible. And I said, look, I have a request and you have every right to say no, but it's, if you can do this for me, I would appreciate it. Um, don't handcuff me in front of my family. You know, they're kind of like holding my arms behind my back kind of a deal. They haven't handcuffed me yet. I'm like, just don't handcuff me in front of my son and in front of my fiance please. And just let me say goodbye. That's all I ask. And, um, they said, uh, okay. And as much as I couldn't stand these guys, I acknowledged them for giving me that little shred of dignity, which comes in very short supply in the prison system. Dignity is, um, a commodity. So, yeah. um, they, they lead me into the living room. 
I lean over to my fiance and I said, um, I've got to go now. I am sorry. Goodbye. Call my dad. Call the wedding planner. That was enough. That was all I had enough time to say. And then they led me outside. They closed the door behind me. And then they handcuffed me. And then uh, they, they said something snarky like, yeah, you better not make a run for it. And then when I walked outside, there was a helicopter with a little like beam on me, you know, and they have the, you know, they're, they're circling around with the, the light on. And there is a row of like 15 crown Victorias in the alleyway. They have guys posted at every corner. Um, they actually shut down a city block <laughs> to, to do this. Wow. And the police, I mean, you would have thought, um, I was Ted Kaczynski or something, you know, you would have thought I tried to, you know, murder the president or something. I mean, this was the kind of like, wow. I mean, I don't know whether to be impressed or insulted, you know, but, um, yeah, is this, is this compliment? I mean, do you really thought I was, th and I said, you really thought I was this much of a, uh, a threat. And he goes, well, you did have weapons. I, mean, I had two swords <laughs> rusted shut, but because I was armed uh, and they, you know, but they got the hazard pay. They got to have a lot of fun in their planning room. Uh, so they shoved me into the back of a Crown Victoria, took off. Uh, well, it was kind of hard because, you know, the alleyway was crammed full with Crown Victoria. So it was a little bit of a traffic jam trying to get them all to clear this alleyway. Then they did. And I'm like, oh, that's strange. I mean, it's like rush hour now at this moment. And this, this city block should be like tons of traffic. And I see all these roadblocks and I'm like, and they've got, they've got federal agents posted with like, you know, uh, more than just pistols. I, I don't know anything about guns, but these were not pistols. These were, these were weapons. Uh, and I'm like, Oh my gosh, what, how many people were involved? And in I, am I that big of a deal? But, um, the one thing I've learned about the federal government is they like a production. They are really big about the production. So, um, they were, complaining the whole way that they had to drop me off um, in Los Angeles because I was living in Los Angeles County at the time. And uh, these guys were out of a different county where my dad was living. And uh, so they were, they, they don't know the people in LA. This is like a different office and they don't have the connections over there or whatnot. You know, it's, everyone in Orange County knows who they are so they could be buddy, buddy. But in, in LA, they're kind of like out of fish out of water. Right. And, and so, the, of course, they were um, making it my fault that they had to um, do this thing in L.A. And I'm like, I'm so sorry for inconveniencing you. And um, so they end up driving me to the heart of downtown Los Angeles, um, right outside the Highway 101 in downtown L.A. is something called the Metropolitan Detention Center. Now, there are different levels of security in the federal prison system. Uh, administrative is what's considered anything that doesn't fit into the normal criteria. So a detention center is administrative because you can have all security levels of people there because it's a holding facility while people are going through the court process, right? Then you have minimum, low, medium, and high. And um, then you have maximum, which is like Cheyenne Mountain where like, you know, the uh, Unabomber and people like that are... They're held, yeah. Yeah, they're held. So uh so I meant so Metropolitan Detention Center is known as or MDC for short is a detention center. Now a detention center is the terminology used by the federal government that's just like a temporary holding place until they can figure out what to do with you. 
until they can figure out, you know, until you go through the court process and you're sentenced, then you need to be assigned to a facility. Um, so I am at MDC, and MDC very much looks like a, um, you know, prison. It's very controlled because they have to keep it like you have super high security level guys there. So um, they drop me off at MDC, and thus begins the whole day long process of processing me in. And of course, no one tells you anything. So they they throw me, they they, they hand me off. And uh, they make some snide remarks, and then I just get walked from corridor to corridor, thrown in from holding cell to holding cell. Um, I do that thing where they strip me down naked. Uh, they just want to make sure I don't have anything, you know, knives up my butt or anything. Um, and then throw some jumpsuits at me to put on. And then they throw me into holding cell, and it's freezing in there. I remember it being freezing in there, and I am in shock at this point. Uh, it's not really dawning on me yet what is happening. I'm just kind of in shock. An hour ago, I was sleeping. <laughs> you know, <laughs> an hour and a half ago, two hours ago, I was, I was, I was snoozing away. I'm just, and now I'm here. So there's a lot of shock that was happening. And then I, um, I go and, uh, and then they, then some lady comes up to me. And she goes, um, I'd like to have a conversation with you. And I'm like, okay, are you my attorney? She goes, no. And she goes, um, but I am with the, the, the court, and I want to know if you'd like to submit an application for bail. And I'm like, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. I'm just here to see if you'd like to do that. Well, can I talk to an attorney so I know what that means? Nope. Do you want to apply for bail? And I'm like, but what does that mean? <laughs> and so she's like, I just need a yes or no. And I'm like, Yes, <laughs> I just I had a fifty-fifty shot. I figured I got a fifty shot, fifty percent chance of getting this right. I said yes. That was the correct answer. I was supposed to say yes, which was basically found out later. Do I want to go through the process of being eligible to be bailed out of jail so I can, you know, be bailed out? Um, if you say no, then you're screwed and you have to spend the whole time in prison. Um, but I said yes, and so that meant I had a shot. So she's asking me a bunch of questions about my finances, of which, of course, I had all the answers. I had all the numbers down. I am the guy who is in charge of the finances. I know everything down to the dollar. So, uh, and she's like, okay, thank you. Um, have a good day. And I never saw her again. And then my, um, and then eventually they roll me um, into the courthouse and um, I'm in front of what's called a magistrate. So in the federal system, there are different types of judges and a magistrate judge is the judge who is your judge before your official judge. So they kind of handle all of the pomp and circumstance and all of the nitty gritty before your actual court stuff actually begins. So, right. you know, bail and, you know, supervised release or, know all the kinds of things that would come up before you actually start the process of going through your court process if that makes any sense um yeah. so uh, i'm with a magistrate judge who seems to be fairly reasonable right i like this lady she seems to be somewhat fair and then all of a sudden my attorney comes up and says hi i am alex i am your attorney and um you know and she hands me this she hands me 60 pages. And I'm like, oh my God. She goes, I know this is a lot. 
It's not normally this big. But if you could read this in 30 minutes, this is what they're <laughs> charging you with. And I'm like, you're kidding me. So, you know, some guys never find out what they're charged with, right? You know, I, I've heard of stories of guys, and I think in the last episode, you, there was a guy, he didn't even know why he was there. And now I have the opposite problem that I've got 60 pages to read in 30 minutes to figure out why I'm there. And so I am just trying, now thankfully, I did have a college education and I did have to take a course in speed reading. So thankfully, I was able to plow through about 50% of it. And, and, but, you know, it's all in legal jargon and, but I was able to get a gist. Um, and so I'm just kind of flipping through all this and it's starting to make sense. And I'm like, oh, this is why it took them a year to come and finally get me. They were really doing their homework and, uh, I'm flipping through all these pages and I'm like, okay, all right. I, I think I kind of understand what's going on. And, uh, I gave it back to her. I'm like, I don't have anywhere to put this. And she goes, that's okay. I'll, if, if we find out where you're going to be, you know, I'll, I'll FedEx it to you. And, um, so, um, and then she kind of says a remark to me. She goes, oh, by the way, um, I'm new. And I'm like, what do you mean you're new? She is a brand new attorney. Like <laughs> recently passed the bar, recently got a job as an attorney. I think this was her first job as an attorney. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, <laughs> my philosophy has always been, if you want to, uh, if you're an, in order to be an expert in anything, you need to know 1% more than me. And you're an expert. She clearly has 1%, at least 1% more knowledge than I do in federal <laughs> criminal law, which is equal to 0%. So you're new. That's fine. You sure know a hell of a lot more than I do. <laughs> I couldn't defend myself. And so I said, just do the best you can. You know, we'll get through this. And, and, um, so she's, uh, I, I, I kind of give her the gist of what's going on. Hey, I'm supposed to be getting married this weekend. I don't know if it's going to happen. And um, so she, she goes and the, the, the magistrate says, you know, this is what you're being charged with. How do you plead? You can't plead guilty right now. <laughs> well, I guess I plead not guilty. Okay. Your, your, your plea of not guilty is, is entered. And at this point in the process, you're not allowed to plead guilty. So, um, they ask you how you plead, um, it, it, partly because there are some processes in the, in the legal system that happens. Um, the indictment process has to go through and it hasn't happened yet. So I can't plead guilty if I haven't been indicted by it yet. Um, so with the federal system, um, the system is very well defined, right? There, the yeah. process is very much the process, um, there is a lot of red tape in the federal system. So, but they're still required to ask you how you plead because you've just been arrested, but they're like, don't, you can't plead guilty because nothing's really happened yet. So I'm like, I guess I plead not guilty then. Okay, boom. And I'm like, why are we even asking this question? <laughs> so, but you know, the process is the process. Don't, don't question the process. So <laughs> um, my attorney's like, look, um, I, I'll try and see you when I can. Uh, I've got your case file. We'll be working on it. And you know what you can hang in there i'm going to try and get them out so you can try and get married so uh she um i have a public defender because i had I, I had money but i didn't have enough money for an actual attorney an actual private attorney for a federal criminal fence is about starting at about a hundred thousand dollars um if you wow. if people who uh didn't qualify for a public defender and had a private attorney 
they most everyone had a more had a second mortgage on their house to pay for uh, their attorney so it costs the equivalent of one mortgage to hire an attorney to defend you in a criminal case against the federal government there's not a lot of them to choose from too it's not like you know i i need to choose an attorney to defend me against a traffic ticket and i got a whole bunch to choose from it's a very small community of attorneys that handle criminal law in the federal system so most people get a public defender Consequently, the people who've actually complained about their legal assistance and representation were those who hired their own attorneys. <laughs> those were all the people who were like, my attorney screwed me. And would do you have a public defender? No, they hired someone. I'm like, oh, strange. Um, <laughs> the public defenders in the federal system are truly, really good, in my opinion. Now, I've heard some, maybe some one or two bad stories, but most of the majority of the anecdotal stories I've heard from guys about their public defenders have been positive. And I am no exception. In fact, I think I kind of won the lottery, even though I had a brand new attorney. She was fantastic. I had a fantastic legal representation. I didn't stand a snowball's chance in hell, but she did her damnedest. And, um, and I am grateful for that. Now, is that the case in other systems? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I had a public defender in the family court system because I was also fighting a two-front battle. Um, on the heels of the federal government when they raided my house was the Department of Child Services. You know, they're, they're afraid that you know something has happened to a child um, where a criminal act has taken place. So um, I had to. I was now fighting a two-front legal battle. Uh, every Monday I was in court. If I was in court with the federal government, then I was in court with the family court. You know, I was, it was very exhausting. So, um, so my attorney said, uh, uh, you know, I'll see you. And I, um, so then I go through the process of being admitted into the detention center. Now, uh, the courthouse is directly connected to the federal detention center. It's, what I called the underground railroad. There is this tunnel that connects the courthouse to the prison so that you never step outside. Um, it's pretty fascinating and a real feat of engineering. Uh, the, uh, then they process me into the facility um, and take my photo, the mugshot, the whole rigmarole paperwork. They put you in a room with a phone so you can make your one phone call. I tried calling my dad got his voicemail so um i couldn't leave a voicemail because he had to accept the the call <laughs> so i let the recording call him and i tried calling someone else and it was the one and it was like you know it was early in the morning <laughs> on, a, on a on a thursday everyone was working so and it was from a blocked number so no one was taking the call so uh i don't you know i wasn't able to make my i tried to make a phone call but i couldn't reach anyone so um I'm going to fast forward here because it's just a lot of waiting and a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, self panicking. Um, but eventually they gave me a bedroll. So they give me like my sheets and, uh, I think they give me a, uh, yeah, they give me my sheets. They give me some, a blanket, you know, just kind of just some random stuff, you know, a bottle of prison, all purpose prison shampoo. Um, and I'm like, okay. Um, and then they shoved me onto a floor. So the way the Metropolitan Detention Center is, is there's nine floors of, um, their wings, I guess. And each, each floor has two wings, a North and a South wing. And each wing is a 
grouping of incarcerated people. And so I was on the ninth floor in the north wing, nine north. And so they take me up the elevator um, and then they kind of just like kind of like kick me out. And then they spout some stuff at me, which I didn't understand because I'm in shock. And then I'm just standing there like and then you can tell everything in the whole floor stops. You could hear a pin drop and all the all the inmates are staring at me. And the first thing going through my head is I am not in Kansas anymore. Oh, fuck. You know, <laughs> and I am, my knees are probably clicking against each other right now. I am about to shit my pants and, or my jumpsuit. I don't have pants yet at this point. And, um, uh, I am just deer in headlights. And it just felt like I was standing there forever. Where am I supposed to go? What cell am I in? What bed am I in? What do I do? You know, just, just nothing but questions and no answers. And then all of a sudden, this guy comes up to me. The old white guy comes up to me. <laughs> yes. Are you new? And I'm like, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Yes, I am. But I think he was just asking just to kind of, you know, get things comfortable. And then he goes, where are you staying? And I go, I don't know. What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. It's like, I don't speak the language. And then he goes up to the guard sitting behind a desk and starts asking him a bunch of questions using some slang. And the guard gives him an answer and then like waves his hand at him. And he goes, okay, you're over here. And then he kind of grabs me and then just like grabs my shirt and just, or my jumpsuit and just kind of tugs me to a random cell. To me, it seemed arbitrarily random, but it happened to be the one I was assigned to. And then, um, and then there's a guy in the bottom bunk and he just sees me with this wide eyed fear. And he's like, and you see like he's like okay and he just grabs a towel or something i guess he was going to go work out i guess i'll go do my workout now <laughs> he just heads on out of the cell knows that stuff has to happen now i guess and um he, this guy says hi um i'm carl and i'm like hi carl i'm david um he goes um uh, this is where you're going to be staying um you, you've got the top bunk um make your bed. They make a big deal about that. So, um, yeah. I don't have a fitted sheet. So I'm like, you know, how do you, how do you make your bed without a fitted sheet? I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't have the normal accoutrement that comes with, you know, bed linens. These are just kind of a hodgepodge of stuff. Right. But it's, so I kind of tuck it, but it's all wavy and loose. And I go, no, 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 it's gotta be tight. Uh, or they'll, or they'll pitch a fit. And I'm like, well, how do you do that? I don't have a fitted sheet. And so he starts doing this thing where he starts doing like sailor knots, you know, <laughs> you know, you actually have to tie knots into your sheets in order to make them tight against the bed and kind of shows me how to do it. Um, but I quickly forget because I've kind of got a lot going through my mind right now. And then mm -hmm. he said, um, he says, uh, are you hungry once we get my bed settled? And I'm like, um, yes. In fact, I hadn't eaten all day. They picked me up at four in the morning. I think I had one bologna sandwich at 10 a.m. And it was just two pieces of white, you know, Wonder Bread and one slice of bologna and a mustard packet and maybe a carton of milk. And that was it. That's all I had to eat. And it's now 8 p.m., 7 p.m., something like that. And I had missed dinner. So, uh, so I'm like, now that you've asked me, I am actually really hungry 
And he's like, okay, I'll be right back. And then uh, I, I remember panicking because I'm like, don't leave me alone. I don't know what's going on. Don't leave me alone. I don't really need to be alone. I don't want to be alone right now. And um, and he comes back with a bag of top ramen. Or he comes back actually with, with um, some top ramen already made. You know, he nuked it, you know, in the microwave, you know, put it in the seasoning pack. It's, you know, you know this is little, you know, bon yeah. appetit. And I'm going to tell you, it was the best soup I have ever had in my entire life. It was a small shred of something had gone right and it felt so warm and it had been cold all day. Oh, it was the best soup I've ever had. And then he's like, um, you know, and he starts giving me the lowdown. He goes, there's some things we have to go over right now and the rest can wait until tomorrow. Um, and then all of a sudden, next thing I know, there's like four big guys that look like linemen you know, football linemen at, in my doorway and they're waiting for an answer. And he's like, I need to know who you're running with. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. I'm very book smart, but I am not street smart. What does that mean? Um, are you black? Are you Asian? Are you white? Are you running with the others? Uh, which is like, you know, when it, it, just like a government form, when you have to fill out your ethnicity on a government form, are you Caucasian? Are you black? Are you Hispanic? Or are you other? And if you mark other, then you run with the others. I mean, really, it's like broken down to a form. And I did not know it, but what I would answer now would shape who I would run with for the next five years. <laughs> no one tells you that's a very important decision. So I'm like, um, I guess you're white. So who do you run with? He goes, I run with the white people. And I'm like, I'll run with you. You're the only one who's talked to me. You're the only one I know. And I'll go with you. And, he, and so he goes over and he says some stuff in some prison slang that I haven't quite picked up yet, but he essentially tells them he's running with the whites. And then they're like, they kind of shake their head, like, you know, let it, let it be entered into the, into the book and let it be so amen. And boom. And then they run off and then they promptly alert all the heads of state that um, a new person has come in and has been categorized as such. Um, I found it all very weird coming from the street and um He's like, you are what we call a fish. Any new inmate who comes in is a fish. I'm like, why is that? Because you're a fish out of water. I'm like, that is very true. Um, I have something for you. It's called a fish kit. And I'm like, okay. And he runs back, comes back, and he comes back with a gift basket. It's like a little gift basket. Uh, you know, as one could make in prison with one's materials available, but it's got like this little, somehow he got some kind of cellophane wrap and, and arranged it like you would see like a gift basket. And um, inside was everything I needed in order to make it. It had toiletries because in the federal system, you are required to buy all your toiletries at market prices, even though one does not get paid at market prices cannot afford toothpaste that's a you problem not a me problem right um but here it is it was toothpaste a toothbrush it was some soap and some shampoo it was a stamped envelope and a pen and some paper so i could write a letter it was a bible it was a just everything uh, oh a couple soups a package of cookies just uh, just everything he could think of to kind of like get you started and this was the kindest act of humanity uh, I had encountered ever. You know, I thought, does this mean he gets to rape me now? Like, is I take them like, does that give him carte blanche to do that? 
And he's like, well, I've got one request for you. I'm like, here it comes. He goes, will you go to church? Next time you go to a church service, will you grab a Bible so I can put it in another fish kit? And I'm like, that's all you want? He goes, yeah, that's it. And I'm like, um, yes, I can do that. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. And then he um, heads out for the evening. Says, oh, you know, I'll see you tomorrow. And then I got to climb up into my bunk. And I don't know how to uh, climb up um, into a bunk and kind of... Um, it's entertaining as I'm trying to figure that out. But I eventually make it up there. My cellmate walks in, kind of sizes me up, doesn't say too much. The guards lock the door, it's lights out. Um, but there is a persistent light that's always on. So when they count, they can see us. Um, and there's this tiny little skinny window. Like you've ever seen those prison skinny windows in movies or whatnot. And one of those little skinny yeah. windows that looks out. Uh, I'm on the ninth floor and I'm looking out to the 101. I'm kind of watching traffic as it goes by. And um, when they finally hit all the lights out and it's just that one little light left, then there's not enough light for me to kind of see outside. There's now um, the reflection and I see myself. And in that moment, it hits me. It finally hits me seeing my reflection in, all, in this grimy window, I say, oh my God, how did I, what have I done? Oh my gosh, I'm in prison. Oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. Oh my gosh, I screwed my dad over. Oh my God, everything that I did not see became perfectly clear. It was a moment of clarity. I saw everything, what I had done, everything that had led up to it. It, it just, it just, all hit me all at once. The shock had worn off. Oh my God, what about my son? What about my fiance? What about, what about all of this, right? And I, I didn't sleep that night because now I had a lot to process. And um, um, that's, it just, everything hit me. I saw everything. And I saw this storm brewing in the distance, right? Like I could picture myself kind of like on this little sailboat and Ahead of me is a giant storm, lightning and thunder and dark clouds, and I'm heading right for it. And in that moment, I had a choice. I could whip the boat around, run away like I've always had, and do what I've always done, and get what I've always gotten. Or I can do something different and sail right into that son of a bitch of a storm and weather this thing out. And I don't know how long it's going to be. And um, I made the choice to go forward and, and sail right into this storm and, and no more running. Um, and you know, I read a study somewhere, and uh, I don't remember where it was from, so it was just something I read, so you can take it with a grain of salt. But my anecdotal evidence is an, my anecdotal experience is enough evidence for me that says the most effective time uh, for someone in prison is the first 48 hours. After that, you got diminishing returns. And that is so true. Because it was those first 48 hours that I finally realized the extreme consequences of everything that was happening and the dominoes falling. I saw everything. So um, I then uh, processed that all night. Um, morning hits. Carl comes and finds me and says, um, let me show you how we do breakfast. And... Um, there's a whole process because everything in prison is a process. You know, there's a procedure and there's a lot of unwritten rules. And he's showing me all the unwritten rules and things you do and things you don't do. 
and, and just how to survive. Carl was a lifesaver. I would not have made it those first few nights without him. Then, uh, so I, I got called into a bail hearing, an initial bail hearing. The magistrate said, nope, you're going to have to stay the weekend in prison. We'll, we'll figure this out next week. So uh, I consequently left my fiance at the altar because I was too busy in prison. And she had to make the humiliating call to tell people the wedding was off, you know, hours before, you know, people yeah. had to cancel plane tickets. You know, the caterer's like, well, you're not getting your deposit back. The food's already been cooked, you know? And, uh, you know, I still owed money to everyone. And, um, um, but she had to make that call and our wedding planner was amazing and helped make the calls and, and was giving her up. She's like, look, I can turn this into a family reunion. We can, you know, whip this around. She was trying to come up with all these, you know, find ways to make it work. Um, you know, she, she was going to handle damage control, really top notch. Uh, and, uh, but I think my ex was in just, there was a lot of trauma for her there too. You know, it, it, it hurt her so much to leave her like that, that, um, um, she said no. And I completely understand. I don't know if I could have gone through it either, you know, to face all those people, what in a wedding dress, not get married, you know, having a family reunion, get out of here. So, uh, I completely understand, um, and overnight turned her into a single mother. She had, she thought this was under control. She had no idea. I, I regret that so much. Um, so we, the, the weekend goes by. I'm slowly learning all the little rules. Uh, Carl showing me the ropes. Um, I finally get a visit from my attorney. Um, my attorney says, okay, now we have some time to talk. Here we go. So we're in the visiting room and there are these special, so the visiting room in a, in a, everything from administrative, low, medium, probably uh, are in-person visits. You're sitting at these like little chairs and you're kind of like knee to knee. There's like a little teeny table in front of you, like a teeny little, um, almost like a nightstand, if you will, but really low. Yeah. And you're kind of like, you're, you're like nose to nose with the person almost, right? Uh, unless it's an attorney visit, you kind of get stuck in this like glass case, <laughs> if you will, this like glass box. So you and your attorney can have some privacy, but they can see you and make sure they're not passing you anything. So we're in the glass box. Um, so showing she and I can have some privacy and discuss what's going on. Um, the federal government makes it very clear they respect attorney, client, confidentiality they do respect that and i gotta give the federal government credit for that um so she just has like a briefcase and then boom she lays out all the paperwork and she's like um i don't think we've got much of a chance here and i'm like no we don't i did what i did we're you know i'm guilty um she goes you're facing 15 years i said okay oh, i did not think it would have been that bad but okay she goes, um, if you take this to trial, you'll get 15 years. And what I found out is in the federal government, nobody goes to trial. There is no trial. Everyone takes a plea agreement. 5% of cases, um, there was an, uh, and I'll have to redo, I'll have to go through, I cut out, clipped out an article from USA Today when I was in prison. They did a whole series on the justice system, and they covered the federal justice system, and they, they found out that 95% of cases in the federal system, um, 
go to trial. 2% of those cases that go to trial actually win. The, like, the guy actually wins. The government has a 98% conviction rate. Um, so if the federal government gets you, you're done. There is no, you're getting off of it. You're doing some time. It's 98% assured. <laughs> you're going to do some time. And she was kind of conveying this to me without really saying, <laughs> you, you're not going to get a trial. Nobody go. If you go to trial, you'll get 20 years. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll throw the book at you. That's how they disincentivize you from going to trial is by giving you triple the amount of time you would normally get, you know? So um, she's like, you know, you're facing 15 years. If you go to trial, we're probably looking at 20. And I'm like, well, that's not going to happen. You know, mm -hmm. I don't want to do 20 years for this. And um, uh, she goes, yeah. So she goes, we're going to look at doing a plea agreement. Uh, this is the first one they sent back. It's awful. I recommend rejecting it. And I did. I looked at it. It was terrible. It was like, you know, you never accept the first offer. So I'm like, well, we're rejecting this. Clearly <laughs> approved, you know. And um, she's like, okay, I'm going to focus on um, trying to get you out of here. You know, who can I call? And then I'm like, call my dad. You know, here's his phone number. And thankfully, my dad's had the same phone number since cell phones were invented. So to this day, his phone number is like the only one I actually have memorized and he's never changed it. And since cell phones were invented. And so, um, I said, you know, give him, you know, call him at this number and call these people. And, and could you do me a favor? <laughs> I know this isn't your job, but I was arrested, you know, gave her the whole story about my wedding. And I said, uh, can you call, can you call her and say, you know, I'm sorry, you know, um, you know, we're working on, you know, I, I had some, I don't remember exactly what the message was, but I had some message I asked to please convey, you know, question. And then she's like, okay, I'm on it. She didn't have to do that. And she did. She did. And she reached out to my dad. Um, my dad put his house and his business up as collateral because the bail was so high. Again, in the federal government, everything is just to the extremes, right? Um, if this was state, I could have gone out on my own recognizance. Like they would just have me sign a paper, like, just please don't screw us over and come back. I could have easily been the case had the state picked me up. But when the feds pick you up, everything is just bigger and grander and grandiose. So it was like a, it was like a $500,000 bail <laughs> or something. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So my dad had to put his whole house up and his business up as collateral if I ever. So the way that works is my dad owes five hundred thousand dollars if i decide not to show up to court you know yeah. and so if i do show up he gets you know he had to put a down payment down he'll get like so he had to put like a down payment of 10 percent down you know <laughs> that's still a chunk of money you know fifty thousand. so he had, to, he had to pony up fifty thousand just kind of as a deposit and he would get it back if i showed up and so my dad ended up bailing me out and my uncle my dad and my sister, one of my sisters, my middle sister came to pick me up. And there was a whole drama of me getting out. I couldn't get a hold of anyone. I didn't know where I mean. So they just kind of like kicked me out on the streets of LA again. I'm just kind of holding a couple things, a couple pieces of paper. And, and, and I'm just kind of like standing there like, what do I do now? You know, same thing, just kind of deers in the headlights. Where is, a, you know, they were at a different part. And so, Thankfully, I knew this part of LA and I ran to where I happened to know where there was a public phone and I called my dad collect and said, 
I'm over here. Where do I meet you? And so they, they, we met somewhere and they picked me up in a car and my uncle was there and my sister was there and they were just kind of there to kind of console me. It was a very quiet ride back. I was kind of telling them a couple stories, you know, just to fill the conversation up. And but it was a very quiet ride back home. Um, my dad gets home and, you know, everyone else is going into the house and he kind of stops me in the driveway and he kind of looks at me and he says, you know, if you run, um, I owe a lot of money. Um, if you run, the marshals come after you, right? So if you skip federal bail, it's the U.S. marshals who come hunting for you. And they're really good at finding people. Um, he says, if you run, do not fear the marshals. You should fear me. <laughs> <laughs> the marshals can't kill you, but I will, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> so I'm like, yes, sir. No, sir. I won't do anything stupid. You have my assurances of that. I'm not going anywhere. They took my passport and they shredded my passport. They made sure I wasn't going to go anywhere. So, um, I did get bailed out. And then, uh, my attorney calls me and says, you know, set up a time to come see me. We're going to go through the whole process. In the meantime, uh, I never got Carl, his Bible. I got bailed out before I had a chance to, you know, you know, do what he requested. And so, um, I, Carl and I had a very similar inmate number and, um, and I remember it was like a few digits were transposed. It was the same series of numbers, but they were just transposed in different places. And so, um, I was able to figure it out and I sent him some money. I just wired him some money, you know, with the note saying, Hey, couldn't get you this, but here, you know, keep building your kit, you know? Here's 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 fifty bucks, and fifty dollars in prison is a king's ransom. <laughs> you can buy a lot of stuff for fifty dollars. So, um, so I go through the process. Um, my attorney says, "Here's what's going to happen," and she lines everything out for me. Even though I had a brand new attorney, and she's like, "I'm sorry, I don't have any experience. My specialty in law is not in this part of criminal law. You know, I'm I'm specialized with this over here, but I know this attorney and we're going to work together and we're going to figure it out. And I promise you'll keep you in communication. And so even though my attorney was not really skilled in the laws and the proceedings of what I did, uh, she was a hundred percent in communication with me the whole time. I never was out of the loop. Um, every day I was getting a FedEx package. Every time the court did something, she immediately let me know. I knew everything that was going on. So there was some stuff I had to be there for. There was some stuff I didn't have to be there for. Um, because no one goes to trial, you actually waive your right to an indictment. So the government doesn't actually, so an indictment um, is when the government has to provide proof that there is enough proof to, can, to even warrant a trial, right? There's a grand jury, which is made yeah. up of regular citizens. And, and the, the government says, here, look, look at all of this evidence. We think there's enough here to warrant going to trial here. Do you agree? And they say yes or no. Now there's not enough here. But because no one goes to trial, you actually waive your rights to an indictment because you're going to go to a plea agreement, which means the government doesn't actually have to pony up an evidence to warrant enough to even be worthy of a trial. That's why you see a lot of criminal stuff go through like they they, they went on that because they don't have to because everyone waves a right to an indictment because no one goes to trial and the few who do do end up getting the ridiculous sentences the government makes that very clear so um we went to another proceeding because we waived this so there's not going to be a jury um so it's just going to be you me the prosecutor and the judge and we went through all of the the process and then i was fighting another front of fighting the um, uh, uh, fighting, you know, trying to have some kind of 
you know, what's going to happen with my son. They wanted to, they wanted to basically nix me from ever seeing him again, which was absolutely ridiculous. And um, thankfully, I was able to fight for monitored visitation. And my um, <laughs> my public defender in the family court system was like, "You're a despicable human being. I hate you. You're a felon." And I'm like, "I haven't even been convicted yet," <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I'm like, the, "The evidence that the federal government is using to prosecute against me, like the evidence you're using against me, will exonerate me in family court." And they're like, "Yeah, but that's." But we can't admit that evidence. And I'm like, why not? It's good enough for the federal government. It should be good enough for you. And so I'm like, here, I asked my, my attorney for a copy of all the evidence the prosecutor's using against me. She goes, sure. And she hands it to me. And I'm like, I hand it to my public defender and family court. And she's like, I can't use this. I'm like, what do you mean you can't use this? This has been sanctioned by the federal government. You know? And trust me, they have much more rigorous standards than you guys have. And uh, she's like, nope. And then I'm like, then all they have is hearsay. And she's like, that's good enough. And I'm like, what are you doing to actually defend me? <laughs> and, um, and the answer was not a damn thing. And so she's like, you're going to get monitored visitation and you're going to be lucky to get that. You should be happy with that. And I'm like, F you. So um, I can definitely understand people who have terrible experiences with public defenders because there are some terrible ones out there, but there are also some fantastic federal uh, there's actually some fantastic public defenders out there and my federal public defender was amazing so um i couldn't believe it you know everything that the federal government was using to throw me away for 20 years would have exonerated me in family court but eh, you know that's the way the system is so um so i only got monitored visitation with my son uh which is great at least i could be in his life which is all i cared about now um um so we go through that whole process. Um, there's a lot of court battle going back and forth. Um, I lost my job um, because my job notice I didn't show up for a few days for like, you know, almost half a week because I forgot to tell them to call my employer and tell them I was in prison. So I go to HR and say, um, here's what's going on. Um, just wanted to let you know. And then they're like, mm, we're going to choose to let you go. And I'm like, well, I haven't even been arraigned yet. And the arraignment is where they say, you are now officially being charged with this. So up until that point, they had just arrested me, but hadn't officially charged me with anything yet. Everything had been like, here's what we are going to charge you with, and here's what's going to happen. But it hadn't been official yet. So I'm like, how can you, how can you let me go because I committed a crime when I haven't even been charged with a crime yet? But in California, it's at-will employment, so they can just let you go just because they don't like you. So they're like, we're letting you go. So then now I've lost my career and I've lost all of this. And <sighs> Hey everyone. So we're going to end the third episode there just because we just got to the halfway point And this current episode has also gone pretty long. Uh, in the next episode, David's story will resume when he begins his trial. And we're going to skip forward a few months past where we are right now in the story. If you have any questions for David or me, feel free to send me an email at sahith, S-A-H-I-T-H, at tos.us, T-O-S-T dot U-S, and I'll forward any questions you guys may have to him. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening to this episode, and the second and final part should be up in a few days.